We've been in a series called Encountering Jesus. We're going to be in John chapter 3 if you want to turn there. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read 15 verses. How do you preach John 3 and not preach John 3.16? You'll see today. Uh, I'm not even going to get to John 3.16. We're going to stop right before it. So if you have a copy of God's Word, you have a device you're going to open it up on, scroll there, click there, turn there. And let's look at John chapter 3. Al said last week, we're kind of preaching it backwards. Last week he was in John 4, and then we're we're going backwards one chapter. So here we go, John chapter 3. This is the word of God. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs you do unless God's with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one's born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who was descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Father, thank you for your word that you reveal yourself to us that we could know who you are and enter into a loving relationship with you. And we pray that you would speak to us this morning from John chapter three, in Jesus' name, amen. So we've been in a series called Encountering Jesus, and it's only recently we've kind of dipped into the book of John. Uh, We've been all over the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. We've seen different ways Jesus has encountered different kinds of people all throughout the gospels. And it's kind of been leading up to Easter. So we have this week, next week is Palm Sunday, the week before Easter. And then in two weeks from today, we'll celebrate Easter. And we're extremely excited to look at the death of Jesus on Good Friday. We'll have a Good Friday worship service. And then on Sunday, we'll celebrate the resurrection of our Lord But as we get there, just like the Gospels do, they set up Christ's death and resurrection by first looking at his life. By first looking at his life. What did he do when he was alive? And you can't read any of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, without noticing the way he encounters people. Many different kinds of people. Surely you can find yourself in some of those encounters and go, hey, I think I kind of identify with this person who asked Jesus a question or this person who has these kinds of needs. And you see all these different encounters Jesus has with people. And in John chapter 3, we see a man named Nicodemus come and encounter Jesus. Now, Nicodemus is a really important name if you read the entire book of John, and I'd encourage you to do this. I should have written the references down, but he comes up, I believe, in John 7 or 9, and then he comes up again uh, towards the death of Jesus in John 19 or 20. 
So here we see him asking questions about Jesus. We, we, we see him kind of wondering, okay, I'm a part of this group, the Pharisees, that's really opposed to Jesus, as you'll read and you have read if you've been following our New Testament reading plan. It says he's not just a Pharisee, but he's a ruler of the Jews. That, that was probably meaning he was a part of the Sanhedrin, this ruling council of Jewish leaders. Paul says in Philippians, I wasn't just a Pharisee. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Nicodemus was quite literally a Pharisee of Pharisees. I mean, he oversaw huge sections of the Jewish religion. So no doubt because of that, we know he was probably an older man. We know he was extremely well-educated in the things of the Jewish faith. We know that Jesus and the Pharisees didn't get along. But here is Nicodemus coming at night. Now, John doesn't say why exactly he came at night, but... Use your imagination. Was he was he scared to be seen with Jesus? What would the Pharisees think if they saw him? Was he a little bit ashamed that maybe he had some questions that he couldn't answer? But either way, Nicodemus comes at night to Jesus. This Pharisee, this ruler of the Jews, comes to Jesus. And he I think we see three things in this text that apply to us today. The first thing is we see the real problem with us. When, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he technically doesn't ask a question yet. And Jesus gives an answer. He, he just kind of makes a statement. Like, Rabbi, this is verse 2, Rabbi. So he's, he's respectful to Jesus. He's given them this title of, of teacher. We know that you're a teacher come from God. He's acknowledging, he's acknowledging right things about Jesus. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from, come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God's with him. That's it. There's no question mark. Look at your text. There's no question mark there. There's no question. It says, Jesus answered him. Now, hold on a minute. What's he going to say back yet? Nicodemus hasn't got to the point of raising his concern, raising his place of doubt, raising his question. But Jesus, being all-knowing and wonderfully perceptive, cuts right to the heart. Truly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, even as a very religious teacher, a very learned man, an aged man, had a need that was deeper than he realized. Just like I do, even as a religious teacher, as a, as a pastor, I have a, a very deep need. See, Nicodemus is looking for a teacher. That's how the whole Sanhedrin and Pharisaical movement and Jewish movement, he was looking for a teacher. He says, Rabbi. You're a teacher. We see your signs, and your signs are pointing to your teaching, and so we recognize there's something good about your teaching. And Jesus says, if all you see is my teaching, you've missed the point, Nicodemus. You don't just need good teaching. See, the real problem with us is just like the real problem with Nicodemus. It's so much deeper than we'd like to admit. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and, and wants to relate on this Level of teaching. Hey, hey, good teacher. Hey, rabbi. Notice Jesus doesn't correct him. But see, when we come to Jesus, just like Nicodemus in John chapter 3, we have to face the real problem with us. And it runs much deeper than our teaching. See, the problem is so deep that Jesus says we need to be born again. 
We're going to talk in just a minute about what that means, but I think just from Jesus' answer, we can tell that the problem is much deeper than just, let, let me correct this point of doctrine you have, Nicodemus. Let me correct this uh, misunderstanding you have on this part of your holy book. No, no, no. Jesus says, look, the whole thing you're looking forward to, the kingdom of God, where the son of David is going to be the king forever and everything's going to be made new, you're not even going to see it unless you're born again. That must have offended Nicodemus at some level, right? Nicodemus probably thinks, wait a minute, you're telling me I've missed all of it? You're telling me all the rules I've followed, all the rules I've come up with, all the teachings I've done, all the money I've given away, all the things I've done, you're telling me it's all for naught unless I'm born again? See, Nicodemus had not reckoned with the real problem with him. And I think often for us, we don't reckon with our real problem either. The real problem is so deep that Jesus says the only solution is to be born again. So what in the world is our problem? Well, first of all, I think it's the whole, not the part. There's not a part of us that's wrong. It's the whole. It's not like we got off to a good start and got a little off track and someone needs to come and kind of nudge us back over. It's not that we have, hey, I'm, I'm mostly good, but I just have some of these things that I, I st- you know, everybody's got their demons, right? That's not what, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches it's the whole, not just the part that needs renewal, that needs to be born again. It's all of you. And what does the Bible call this problem? It calls it sin. And sin is a natural bent, a disposition away from God, living independent of God, living a self-centered life, living towards the creation rather than the creator. The Bible calls it sin. Now, we try to solve this problem in two ways. We're all inherently aware of some problem. And I think this is where the Bible is absolutely genius because if you're here this morning and you're a skeptic of God's word or you don't believe God's word, here's something I think you probably need to admit the Bible gets right. The greatest problem in the world is inside of us, not outside of us. That's brilliant. I mean, you don't have to be a follower of Jesus to probably nod your head at that. Now, here's where our... our our solutions are to this problem that's inside of us, not outside of us. The Bible calls it sin. And whether you call it sin or not, here's two ways to respond. First is our culture's mantra. Affirm what's in you. Don't say no, say yes. Don't suppress your feelings, release your feelings. Follow your feelings, follow your emotions. They are the great God within you. Live your truth. Don't suppress your truth for someone else's truth. Live yours. Don't suppress anything that's in you, but affirm it. But don't we know from experience that what's in me is not always good? I mean, you don't have to be a follower of Jesus to say that. You really don't right? You, you could totally follow this cultural mantra of affirm what's in you instead of fight against it. Go with the current. But, but here's the problem. If you only ever affirm what's in you, have you never hit a point in your life that you've been totally and absolutely disgusted with what you see coming out of you? I mean, have you never hit a point in your life where you're, you kind of come to the end and you go, I, I can't, goodness, I could affirm A, B, C, but, but at some point this is I'm really tired of myself. At some point, I have to admit the problem's not just outside me, it's inside me. There's nothing to affirm anymore. I mean, just take the last 12 months during COVID, during the pandemic. The struggle of isolation and being alone was real for so many of us. So many of people in the world 
I mean, the rates of depression and anxiety and suicide skyrocketed. It's really hard to be alone because you begin to look at your life. You begin to look at yourself. Writer Blaise Pascal hundreds of years ago said the greatest problem with man is that we can't sit in our room alone and quiet. He said that before modern technology. How much more so is that true today? That there's a problem in us, and we've seen it just from experience, from COVID, the struggle of being alone. We're obsessed with self-improvement. We're obsessed with self-improvement. We want to improve what's going on within us. Why? Because we admit there's something in us that's not the way it's supposed to be. We don't work like we're supposed to. We're broken, and we're desperately trying to find a way out. So even if you follow the cultural mantra of affirm what's in you, you eventually hit the end of your rope, and you realize, I can't affirm everything that's coming out of me because even... That is polluted. Even that is polluted. Now, now what's the opposite of our cultural mantra? It'd be the religious mantra. Earn God's favor. You can do it. You can change. You really can live your best life. Set your mind to it. You can, this may be where Nicodemus fell. Hey, here's the rules of God. Now just grab hold of those things and obey it. What's the thing I say to my kids? You know better. You know the rule. Why aren't you following it? <laughs> and I think if they could, they would respond back. Aren't you preaching on that tomorrow, Dad? You know why I can't follow it. But the religious, the other side of that cultural mantra is the religious mantra that says, earn God's favor. Get the right teaching. Learn the right rules and live your life accordingly. Conform your outward behavior. That's how you change the sin that's in you. But here's the problem. You can conform the outside. Jesus said it like this to the Pharisees. You can wash the outside of the cup and not the inside. He said it's like going and whitewashing tombstones. It doesn't change what's underneath. Death. We can clean up our outward act and the inside still be rotten. So when you come to Jesus, here's what you're going to have to reckon with. Believer or not believer this morning, when you encounter Jesus through his word, through people in your life telling you about him or here this morning, when you encounter Jesus, you're going to encounter the real problem with you. You're going to encounter the real problem with you. And Jesus says you're not going to find it in the cultural mantra of affirming what's in you. And you're not going to find it in the religious mantra of earning God's favor and conforming outwardly. He said you're only going to find the solution by being born again. So if the real problem is inside of us, not just outside, I mean it's inside you. It's inside me. It's sin in me. The second thing we see when we encounter Jesus is the real solution. We see a real solution that Jesus offers. And this is where Jesus says, you have to be born again or you're not gonna see the kingdom. Uh, Nicodemus completely misses what Jesus is talking about. He goes, no, wait a minute. And he's thinking on the physical level. Now I've been born. You want me to crawl back inside the womb and do that again? Not much less the physics, not sure mom's willing. Okay? I mean like, you do that and you go, praise God, that's, here you are and that's done. And he's going, there's no way, how does that work? And, and Jesus just, he said, you, you missed the point. You missed the point about what I mean when I say being born again. Now, there's some wordplay that we miss in English that happens in the original text. In the original text, the word for again also means above. So it can mean to do something again or it can mean above, like the heavenly, like divine above. 
not like second floor and first floor, but like from godly origins. So what Jesus is saying is you must be born again or you must be born of above. You must be born from above. And when Nicodemus misses the point, listen to Jesus' words. He says, okay, I'll explain it for you. Oh, great teacher of Israel, since you don't understand, I say to you, unless one's born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. So what does it mean to be born again or the wordplay being born from above? Jesus says it means being born of water and spirit. Great Jesus, I still need some explanation, right? Part of this is Jesus is talking to a Jewish person 2,000 years ago. We've got to do the best we can to cross that cultural gap, that contextual gap to go, how would he have understood this? Well, a Jew, if he heard water and spirit, here's what he would have thought of. First, in the Old Testament, he would have thought of what does water always symbolize, especially in our relationship to God. Water always symbolizes renewal and cleansing. Think about the rituals they would go through and the way the priests would have to cleanse themselves with pure water. Think about the way water was talked about in the Old Testament. You could go read Leviticus. Go read the first five books of the Bible and watch the way water is this purifying tool that God uses to purify his people, to make them clean and not unclean. But the other word he uses is spirit. And in the Old Testament, the spirit is almost always God's principle of life and renewal. Think even in creation, the spirit's hovering over the waters. Now here's one place you see both water and spirit come together in the Old Testament. It's Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. He's prophesying, hey, happen when the Messiah comes. When the Messiah comes, when this ruler, this king, this savior and redeemer comes, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you, all your false worship. I'm gonna cleanse you of it. And I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. When Jesus says you're gonna be born of the water and spirit, he's talking about Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. God's gonna sprinkle clean water on us and he's gonna make us clean because we just talked about the real problem is that we're not clean with sin. And Jesus says you need to be born again and you need to be born of the kind in which you're gonna be made clean because you're not. Then he says, the Spirit's going to come in you, and he's going to give you life. He's going to give you God's law, not just outwardly conforming to it, but inwardly you're going to now have the power to obey God's word. And so a theology word that's good to know is regeneration. Now, you can break that up, and you, you use those words. You know what that means. The prefix re means like again, to do it again, and then generation, we use the generation typically like noun, like the generations and next generation. But to generate something is to make something. So to regenerate is to make again. So the theological category of regeneration is to be made again, to be made new. Jesus, when he talks about the rebirth, the regeneration, being born again, Jesus is saying, you need to be 
made new. There's nothing outwardly you can do to deal with the depths of your problem that we all experience. The only solution is for you to be made new. And for you to be made new, it takes water and spirit. This, God's going to cleanse you and God's going to give you new life. Now think about the way he says that this happens. He uses the illustration of the wind. He says, look, it blows where it wishes. You don't see it. You see the effects of it. But you don't really see the source of the wind. But you don't doubt that the wind's really there. He says the new birth is just like this. In fact, he's kind of reckoning back to John 1, verses 12 to 13, where in the prologue of the gospel, John says, to all who did receive him, being Jesus, who believed in Jesus' name, Jesus gave the right to become children of God. Children born again, you see the play there? And these children who were born not of the blood, nor the will of the flesh, or the will of man, he's saying, look, this is not, I'm not talking about children like, all the Jews are going to be saved because they happen to be born in that bloodline. He's saying that's not how these people are born, but these people are born of God. It's a work of God in you that saves you. It's a work of God in you that cleanses you. It's a work of God in you that puts his spirit in you so that you're a totally new person. So we see in John 3, the real problem with ourselves We really get to the heart of it where Jesus could confront such a religious man and say, your problem is deeper than just teaching. But then Jesus doesn't leave us hanging. He gets to the real solution. You you need to be totally made new. But the third thing we get to is we get to the real question about Jesus. Nicodemus didn't just misunderstand what Jesus said. He actually misunderstood who Jesus was was. And you see in starting in verse 9, 10, all the way down through 15, Jesus kind of scolds Nicodemus for not understanding. He says, are you the teacher of Israel? And you don't understand this? I mean, you're, you're claiming to be the teacher of the, you're the, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisee of Pharisees, the teacher of the teachers, and you don't understand? So he's kind of scolding him a little bit. And, and Jesus says, look, we speak of the things we see. We're testifying, we're giving witness to the things we've seen. And he says, oh, by the way, I've seen the things of heaven, the things of God's presence. But if you can understand things on earth, there's no way you can understand that. Jesus says, I'm testifying to the things that I've seen and I've seen heavenly things because that's where I'm from. I was in heaven and I descended down so that I could make those heavenly things known. And what are the heavenly things that Jesus is making known? He's relaying the things of heaven to us. And here's what he says. The only one who's seen the things of heaven is is the son of man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so this son of man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He's referencing a story in Numbers chapter 21 where the people are wandering in the wilderness. They begin complaining. Stop me if you've heard this before. They're complaining. God says, fine. Here's some poisonous snakes. And it's one of those like crazy immediate judgment type things where God is showing his people, just trust me and stop complaining because if you want to have life without me, here's an example of what life without me would look like. I don't have to protect you. But then he tells Moses, I'm going to give you a way for these people who are being bitten by these snakes and dying to live. I want you to make a bronze serpent. Put it on a pole, lift it up. Tell anybody, get bit by a snake, look at the bronze one. 
and you'll live. Simple enough. So he builds it, puts it up, look at the snake, you live. Now the snake didn't save anyone, but looking at the snake was an object of faith because it was saying, I believe in God's word that he tells me to look. I look, God, God's the one who saves me, not the snake. But Jesus comes here in John 3 and he says, just like that snake had to be lifted up and you looked at it and you received life, so the son of man, who is Jesus, will be lifted up. And if you look at Jesus, you'll get life. In what sense was Jesus lifted up? He was lifted up on the cross. When the gospels speak of Jesus being lifted up, it's not just talking about worship like we did. It's usually talking about being lifted up in the sense of his crucifixion and death, that he was nailed to a cross and lifted up for all to see in the humiliating public means of death called crucifixion. So the real question about Jesus that he gets to with Nicodemus is not just, hey, uh, what kind of teacher are you? And what kind of teaching do you have? Jesus says, no, no, you missed the point if that's all you're getting from my work and ministry in my life. You completely missed the point. So, I mean, many today want to say that Jesus is a, is a prophet or even a good man, right? I mean, you've heard that. Maybe that's what you believe this morning. He's a prophet. He's a good man. He was a good teacher. But if he were a good teacher, then wouldn't he have stopped at Nicodemus' first comment and said, well done, young Padawan. I am a good teacher. You've cracked the code. Welcome. I mean, I mean, wouldn't he have done that? If he really was a good teacher, why would he respond the way that he did? Listen to C.S. Lewis. This is, this is a, a couple sentences of a quote, but I think this will help us this morning. C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on a level with a man who says that he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus taught things about himself that if they're false, they make him insane. And we ought not to listen to anything that he teaches. That's how bold the claims were Jesus made about himself. So if these claims he made about himself, if they're not true, throw everything out that he said. He's crazy. But if the things he said about himself are true, we better listen to all of it and repent and fall at our knees and worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords because he truly did come in the flesh. But there is no middle ground with Jesus. You don't get the option of saying, good teacher, but the sin stuff, I'm not there on. Because if, if, he's, if he's wrong on that, he's wrong on everything. He said things about himself that if they're false, they make him an altogether crazy person or, or a liar. And this is exactly one of those instances. Because he's teaching that he is going to be lifted up. He is going to be crucified. He is going to die on a cross. And that by looking to him, we can have eternal life. If that's false, that is crazy. See, he's not a teacher in the sense of human history has always thought of teachers that come, and every great prophet or teacher points to the way of salvation. Hey, here's the way you ought to live. 
here's the path to life. Let me show you. And I'll, and I'll even model it. For, I'll go first. I'll model for you how to walk the path of life and the virtues you ought to embody and the way in which you ought to live. I'll point you to it and I'll model it for you. But then it's your choice to come and follow. That's how every teacher exists. Jesus, though, is not just the teacher. He is the teaching. He's not pointing to a way of life outside of himself. He's pointing to a way of life that is himself. Jesus' whole teaching is not that you've got to go do something to find life. It's the exact opposite. It's that if you want to have life, he says, come to me. Come to me to find life. Just like in the Old Testament, in my notes all week as I was studying this passage, I kept, I, I got tired of writing Nicodemus, so I just started calling him Nico, because it's just shorter. So as he's talking to Nico, and he says, hey, you know the story, Numbers 21, serpent in the wilderness. They look to it, what happened? Man, it, it was like miraculous. They all of a sudden didn't die. He says, yeah, yeah, I'm that serpent. I'm the one that's going to be lifted up. Look at me, live. So, so here's what he's saying. Here's the real question about Jesus. Who is he? Who is he? If he's just a teacher, let, let's just go home. Because we got no chance at following the good things he says, and then it makes us look crazy to throw out all the other things he said. But he's not just a good teacher. That's not just what he came to do. And he tells Nicodemus, Nicodemus, missed the point if that's all you want to talk about with me you've missed the point because the real question about jesus is who is he 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 is not who we might think he is and he's not even who we may want him to be but we have to deal with him on his own terms with the words that he spoke and in john 3 here's what he's speaking to nicodemus it's not about being religious it's not about following every rule or even memorizing the old testament that's not what it's about. It's about being born again. And the only way you can be born again is if I'm lifted up on the cross and you look at me. The only way you can experience true life is you gotta look at me. The only way you can not die from the real problem inside of you is not to follow the rules, is to look at me in faith. The only way for you to be cleansed with water that washes away the guilt and shame of your sin is to look at me. The only way to not be punished for the sin that's in you is to look at me and trust that I'm taking it all. That's all you've got, Nicodemus. You've missed it if you think that it's about my teaching and trying to follow it and adding it to your long list of rules. You've missed it. And to come back to another CS. Lewis quote, we, we have to deal with Jesus on his own terms. And like I said, he may not always be who we want him to be. For one, I, for one, would, would kind of enjoy a, a set of rules. I think it would give me a place to come back and anchor to. Give me a paradigm. Let me, let me did I do this? Can I put a check? It's not. It's a person that we live in relationship with and he changes our whole paradigm for life. C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and, and there's so many Christian themes in there. One of them is Aslan is a Christ-like figure. Now it's fiction. Let's not get too hairy on, you know, where does it line up and where does it... But he's a Christ-like, he's a, he's a savior type figure in the Chronicles of Narnia. And as the Pavinci's, the Pavinci children are exploring Narnia for one of the first times, they come across 
Mr. and Mrs. Beaver who are teaching them kind of the lay of the land. And uh, they don't understand like Aslan fully, okay? So the older sister, Susan's like, but it's a lion. Like, I'm going to be scared when I meet him. He says, Mr. Beaver says, oh, yeah, you sure will. You know, no one's going to stand there and not tremble at his knees when you meet the lion. And finally, the little sister, Lucy, just says, but isn't he safe? Is he safe or not? I mean, you're, you're telling us that he's going to save us, but that's not my experience of lions. Is he safe? And he, the beaver replies, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. We can't expect Jesus to be safe for us as far as safety goes. But he's certainly good for us if we know what's good for us. You can't expect Jesus to be safe for you. He's going to ask you to do things that are crazy. He's going to ask you to turn and walk away from a life that you've been trying to build for the decades you've been alive. But if what he says is true, then he's giving you a life that's far better than the decades of the one you've been trying to build. He's giving you eternal life. And that's not just a quantity. That's a quality. Eternal life doesn't just mean like, hey, when you die, eternal life starts. If you know Jesus, eternal life starts now. What it means is life of the age to come. It's kind of like when you look at a time travel movie and you go to the future. Tim Keller said it like this. It's just like that, except it's not you going to the future. It's the future coming into you. You get to live eternal life now. You get to have the kind of life that you'll have in heaven with God right now. Your joy doesn't have to be dependent on the things you can build up, on the size of your savings account, on the comfort of your house, on the health of your family. You can have a joy that's deeper but we've got to come submit to the lion of the tribe of Judah and recognize that he may not always be safe for us. He is a lion after all. He's the creator after all, but he's good. If you want to know that he's good and you want to know that his teaching is good, take the man Nicodemus. And what happened to Nicodemus? Did he think Jesus was crazy? Was he more comfortable dealing with the religious mantra of, of his inward problem? I don't think so. Because when Jesus was hanging on the cross, Nicodemus was with the crowd that went and got him down and went and buried him. They asked permission, can we go get it? Can, can we? Nicodemus brought an outstanding offering to prepare the body for burial. I think, G, I think Nicodemus heard this interaction in John 3 and the good news about looking at Jesus and finding life. And I think he still wrestled, but I think he eventually come to the place and says, you know what? I cannot deal with the problem inside of me. I've got to look and live. So this morning, have you looked? Have you come to terms with the real problem about yourself? That's deeper than you can fix. But that's good news. That means you can stop trying to fix it. And you can look and live. And if you've already looked and you are living, then the good news is this lion is for you. 
The good news is that you have eternal life. And you can look again and again and again and continue to rejoice that he did that for you. That that king is yours and he lives with you and dwells you with his Holy Spirit. Will never leave you or forsake you. So this morning, you might be asking a lot of questions about Jesus. Maybe you know him, maybe you don't. But I'd invite you to ask the real question about Jesus. Who is he? Because if he is who he says he is, then that changes everything. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the unbelievable wisdom it took to put together 66 books of the Bible, all of which are pointing to Jesus. To have prophecies about him, to have stories that echo things he's going to do later. So many authors over thousands of years, yet the whole book is telling us, look and live. So Jesus, help us this morning open up our hands and let go of some of the questions we're forcing you to answer before we trust you. And I pray this morning you would regenerate some people who are here that need this good news message. I pray, God, for those of us who know you, but it seems like the problem that's within us is welling up again. Help us to remember that we're saved once for all. And that the solution to the problem inside of us is not dependent on how well we manage it after we're saved, but the solution to the problem inside of us. God, I pray you'd encourage people with this this morning, Lord. The, the solution to their problem hinges totally on Jesus. And that they can find rest this morning that Jesus has dealt with it, no matter how much they feel like it's taking them over again. Set people free this morning, God. And I pray that as we sing this last song, I pray we'd look and we'd live. Jesus, you are good. Your name is the best place for us to run. It is a strong and mighty tower, God. We can run to it and we can be safe from our sin and find refuge in your love. Continuing a posture of prayer before we sing. I want to coach you on how you can respond in this moment. I hope we all look and live, but I want you to feel invited to come and to pray. These stairs are here, and it's a great uh, symbol. There's nothing magical about it, but it's a great symbol to come and get down on your knees and confess your need before God. Maybe you need to grab someone in this room that you know and ask them to pray with you. Maybe you want to come and ask me or Pastor Al to pray with you, and we would be happy to do that. But maybe this morning you've never met Jesus personally. Maybe you're following the cultural mantra or the religious mantra, and you need to drop them And you need to come to Jesus and look and live for the very first time and say, I've never dealt with the problem within me and this morning I need to deal with it. Then this morning I'd invite you to come right over here and talk to me or come right over here to the other side and talk to Pastor Al.
and say, I need to look and live this morning. That's all you have to say. And we'll help you know what it means to look and live. But it just looks like this, praying in your heart, saying, Jesus, I need you. I know that I'm a sinner and that my greatest problem is sin and that it keeps me from you. But Jesus, I know that you died for my sin. You took my punishment on the cross. That's what Easter is all about. Because you paid for my sin and because you were raised to new life, I can have new life now. And Jesus, I put my faith in your name that I want new life. That's basically gonna be what we tell you if you come talk to us. But this morning, if you've never done that, I would invite you to put your faith in Jesus. We're gonna sing one last song as an opportunity for all of us to respond to God's word. So let's sing like we mean it. Let's sing like we're looking at the one who gives us life. Amen. Respond to God's word this morning.